So let's pull back the curtain again. Most organizations, if they're more than like 200, 300, 400 people, they're going to have salary bands. And you need to have that from a finance planning perspective. You have levels, you have roles. American Express, I remember, had up to like level 50 when I worked there, right? And these are salary bands. And they're very useful for a company because it's defining a title and where you fall into that. If you're being promoted internally, what's your jump going to be? If we're hiring somebody, here's the bandwidth. We're able to hire at this direct level between 150 and 175 on the high end. So now as a recruiter, I have some bandwidth of where I could kind of go with that offer. And I also know that I have pre-approved finance approval to make that offer. And now I don't have to go back to finance and ask for more money. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we lift the curtain on the hiring process by talking to recruiters and hiring managers to help you better understand how hiring decisions get made. Today, I'm talking to Adam Posner. Adam is a really incredible guy who brings a wealth of knowledge to the show. He's been a recruiter for a little under seven years, but prior to that, he was a marketing executive at some of the world's best marketing agencies. So he really brings this unique view of marketer and recruiter, and at its core, he's an amazing people connector. And we talk a lot about the connections of people and relationships and how you need to nurture those and how you show up online and how all those things affect your hire ability. We go on all sorts of topics as both of us being tangenters, but it was a really fun episode and I'm super thankful that Adam was on the show. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week, we're with Adam Posner. And if you don't follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, all sorts of places, you are missing out. Tons of awesome advice and the occasional Web3 stuff. But we're going to talk about recruiting today and best to hear from Adam directly. So Adam, tell us a little more about you. Dave, thank you so much, first and foremost, for having me on the show. Big fan. We know each other. Deeply respect your background, which you're building over at Teal and helping job seekers out. My down and dirty real quick, uh, my elevator pitch, something that I advocate to candidates as well, is to be able to tell your story as succinctly as possible. Born and raised New Yorker, first 15 years of my career working in marketing, media, advertising at ad agencies and client side, American Express, Sirius XM. My last stop before pivoting into recruiting was working for the great Gary V over at VaynerMedia. Long story short, grass was not greener on the other side, and ultimately I ended up losing my job. On that last day of losing my job, Gary says, stop focusing on the things you suck at, double down on your strengths, and push me into the world of recruiting. Spent the first couple of years, so I had to pivot, age of 35, scary as hell, starting a new career, new industry. It was scary. I'm certainly happy to talk about that moment. But I dove in head first, did my due diligence, met and spoke with every recruiter that I ever met with, learned as much about the business as I could before taking a role. Luckily, I aligned with a great search firm called Onward Search, learned the art and science of recruiting. So I ran a full desk for anyone out there. I did business development and recruiting in the marketing, media, and advertising world. Did that for about three years. And then I said, screw it. I'm done giving half my money to the house. And I went out on my own. I launched NHP Talent Group, full service recruitment firm specializing, as you could guess, all things marketing, media, and advertising. Built out a nice team. And about a year and a half ago, I, about two years ago, plus I uh, caught the Web3 bug and I launched Probably Nothing Talent, which is our Web3 division that has since crashed and burned with the market. I'm kidding, but not kidding. There's still things moving on that side. And I am the host of uh, Top Global Career Podcast, The Podcast. Been doing that for about five years, approaching 300 episodes. And the show is all about unpacking my guest's life journey told through the lens of their career and sharing the wisdom of my guests, shining a light on them, and that light 
thankfully reflects back on me. And that's where we are here today. Amazing. Excited to dive into a lot of things. And I think given your background, extra excited to dive into the parallels of the recruiting process and kind of sales and marketing process. Because one of the things I tell people is it's a funnel on either side. Of course. And I've been doing a lot more. I mean, I'd always recruited for companies I founded, but now with Teal, I'm doing a bit more of a like traditional tech recruiting and doing more outbound. I used to just like build relationships on Twitter with folks that were into the niche that I was, which was technology in the building industry. So it was a very small niche and easy to connect. But it was mostly through our content marketing that sort of brought people in. But now I'm seeing like it's a funnel. I got to reach out to a certain number of people. It's sales. I did sales before and I was like, oh, this is a lot like sales. This is people, not a product, but it's still very much a pitch. What are you seeing in the market as the most compelling way to engage candidates? It really comes down to fundamental employer branding. How is your company perceived in the market by candidates? What are they hearing? Listen, bad stuff happens all the time. How do you handle it from a PR perspective? Let's talk more tactical. Let's talk about LinkedIn. And there are positive messages out there coming from employees who work there versus these paid sponsored ads. I'm not a big fan of paid sponsored ads. You know it's paid. You know what the intention is. But when I see someone who works there genuinely speaking positively about their organization, that is good. When I see someone out there who represents their organization, thought leadership, talking about the industry, sharing tips, insights, advice, maybe clips from a keynote or a panel that they're talking about, that's all good stuff. That is a positive lead magnet for two things. One, candidate attraction and retention too. It's kind of cool when you see someone from your company up there talking good stuff that's smart, that's intelligent about your organization and about your industry. So it works both ways. Something we brought up in our team meeting this week that I'm kind of opposed to, but open to feedback on is employee referral bonuses. Right now we're recording this in September of 2023. Market's kind of tight for knowledge workers. Market's complex, I should say. Companies are hiring, there's folks that are losing their jobs, but there's still lots of open positions. And that's a way to source. And then you've got all the gurus saying like, everyone gets hired via referral, which is empirically untrue. But have you seen things like that work? There's two sides of it too. I think there's an inherent bias with employee referrals. It's a like bias, right? If I'm referring something, most likely I'm referring somebody who's like me. And not necessarily in a bad way. And this ties back to the F word that I hate, culture fit. Mm -hmm. I despise that word because inherently the word fit means everyone's homogenous. Everyone's going to look the same, sound the same. I believe in diversity of mindset, right? Not just physical appearance, sexual orientation, backgrounds, but it's the diversity of mindset. Now, the caveat there is aligned values. Mm -hmm. Does everyone in the organization have aligned values? Are we on a common mission there? But real diversity in an organization comes down to mindset. Now, referrals are interesting because I think they work if they're vetted properly. I'm, I used to work with Dave over Dave's awesome. I think Dave would be great here. Now let's properly vet them. But don't overly rely on employer referrals. Now, the other piece of it too is the compensation that you attach to it. And I've seen a lot of products out there that are really trying to monetize this referral thing where it's just becoming a lead, like an affiliate model. Mm -hmm. And that's garbage. Mm -hmm. The other part, because that's what's happening is I'm now putting my name behind the referral. And what if that person's garbage? What's the repercussion on that? So those are my thoughts on referrals. Yeah, I generally think like it's not something I could see myself doing anytime soon, possibly ever. Try not to use sort of very uh, (laughs) definitive language like that because it's like you want people to do it because they want to, because they believe in it. It's such... They want to have a better team and work with better, better, better coworkers. Yeah. 
someone on our team said, let's use the word culture ad instead of culture fit. And I was like, I love 100%. That. that makes so much more sense. Like they make us better, not trying to sort of maintain this thing that's not open to being molded and changed by more perspectives. Here's the analogy I like to use, David. It's a quilt, right? I look at an organization as a quilt, right? It's made up of different fabrics, different colors, different textiles and strengths, right? And you put them all together and you're looking real close. There's lots of different things happening there, but when you pull back, what do you have? You have a beautiful quilt, right? So that's what an organization should aim to. And that quilt is strong. It's beautiful. It keeps you warm. It gets the job done, right? It sounds a little cheesy, but you know what? Yeah, it kind of works. I like it. As a recruiter on the agency side, I would imagine the majority of the work you're doing is outbound. Maybe someone asks you to screen the internal applicants, but I would imagine it's safe to say that's the least of your work. Yes. More so when you hire a recruiter, it's like, we don't have the bandwidth. Can you please go help us find somebody to add to the patchwork of the quilt? Talk me through what that process is like for you so people can better understand how an agency recruiter goes through that all the way to like when you're starting to do that first message you sent to a candidate. Again, going back to analogies, I guess it's an analogy day this Thursday today, right? Like <laughs> sometimes I'm a farmer where I'm growing, I'm cultivating, and I'm nurturing a pipeline. And I do that on LinkedIn. I'm attracting, I'm consistently connecting with candidates, either active or passive candidates within my industry. So when the time comes for me to hunt, I'm going to be able to know where they are in their first contact. Mm -hmm. It also becomes a lot more efficient if I'm using in-mails or direct messages, right? So you're talking about efficiency from that perspective. But the first thing I do with any client, obviously, when we get a job is have an intake meeting with them. Really understand what they're looking for, not just the job description. Yes, we go through it and everything. But what I like to do as a recruiter is I am the first line of conversation with any potential candidate. So I say, Dave, all right, you're hiring a product manager for X, Y, and Z part of your division. What five questions would you ask in a first round interview that I could ask before someone even gets to you? Right. So I am closing the aperture of the search to make add more value to what I am providing than just throwing resumes at a wall and seeing if the shit sticks. Right. That's not what I'm doing right there. So I'm having that intake call. We're also aligning on best, usually if it works well, what that interview process is going to look like. I'm going to present your candidates based on the criteria. I'm going to have a first conversation with them. And then by the time they get to you, we're going to assume that they're in pretty good shape for you to say, hey, yes, I want to talk to these folks if I'm doing my job correctly. What does that interview process look like? Let's outline it. Let's align. So that way I could go back to the candidate and say, managing your expectations if Dave wants to speak with you, you're going to speak with Dave first, and then you're going to talk with Sue, Mary, Bob, and you'll probably have a final call with the CEO just as a kind of check the box to say, hey, this is a great candidate. So I'm managing the expectations on that side. So that's kind of the intake with the client to really understand that. This all layers up to managing expectations on both sides, as we were talking about before the call, right? Managing expectations internally with the client. And now we're going to get to managing expectations with the candidate. When you start a search, obviously always different, but how much of it is like an existing pipeline of relationships you've built? Because you've done that. You know, that's one of the great things about building your personal brand is that you've got a network and you've got people that you're already in touch with. And you probably know folks that have said, hey, Adam, if you see something, let me know. And then how much of it is new, cold outbound? It depends on the role. It really depends on the role. For me, I have a bullseye. Right, I have a bullseye of what I love to recruit on and what I recently recruited on. Mm -hmm. So let's use a, a real life example. Product marketing, product management, mid to senior level roles, UI, UX design. That's what I've been working on very consistently for the last year. So there's two things. One of those are the most recent folks in my LinkedIn world and also on my 
internal CRM database. So now what I could do is work smarter, not harder. I could go back to a past project that looks familiar. And now I already have, say, 150 candidates that I've reached out to. And now I could look deeper and be like, yeah, Dave is good, but he's a little junior for what they're looking for. But ha, Sally over there, I didn't reach out to her, but I put her in my pipeline because I knew she was more senior, but not right for that role. Bam. And I have her right in there and I could fire it off. So that's work smarter, not harder. Now we have to go back into hunting mode. If it's a very niche targeted role, if there's certain special qualifications, for example, right now I'm working roles that require government security clearance, Mm. TSI, poly, all these things. Most of these folks have that on their LinkedIn profile. It's something that you just put, it's a badge, not a badge of honor. It's just like, hey, I have this clearance here. It's a certification, right? So that almost makes it easier because I know that they're there. So now I have to become a ninja. Now I have to go in and find them and surgically strike and use multiple methods of contact to get in touch with them and get them on the hook. Now I use the phishing analogy. I have to use different baits. What messaging is gonna get their attention? Which method, right? Am I using my CRM scraping tool to hit their Gmail, but the only email coming up on there is a Hotmail, which I'm gonna say in this day and age, most people, that Hotmail is what they signed up for LinkedIn for, and that's why the CRM tool scraping it is gonna pull that out, right? So now I have to go to other methods. Am I using an in-mail? Am I using a direct connect with a personalized message? So I have different weapons that I use for that outreach. Now I get them on the hook. Some folks are active candidates where they're on the market, whether it be an open to work banner or maybe they're a little bit more discreet. Then we have folks that are passive candidates where, you know what, that sounds interesting. I'm gonna take that phone call. And a quick side note on that, Dave, one of my biggest pieces of advice to candidates out there, even if you're not active, if something sounds a little bit interesting, take a half hour phone call. It could change your life or it can mean nothing, or you could have just established a contact with a good recruiter for when you might need it in the future. But you don't know unless you take that call. It's a half an hour. So I have a question for you there. This is a theme I'm developing more and more interest in and as sort of as I see the job market. So you recruited pre-COVID and post-COVID. Correct. It was still a phone call, but I feel like the idea of taking an interview, I've seen job seekers already like forward project. Well, if I take the call, then that means I'm gonna have to go to an interview. And it's like, you haven't even taken the call yet. But do you feel like the willingness or appetite to take the call is higher. So much of the interviewing is virtual versus like the in office, got to wear a suit, got to lie and said it's laundry day. How it's changed? A hundred percent. And I also, on my first call, 99% of the time I do audio only. This removes a hundred percent of the barrier of like, oh my God, I got to look at a recruiter on screen. I got to be presentable. I can't be sitting in my car at the Chick-fil-A drive-through, right? Because I'm in my lunch break. And plus, I don't want to look at somebody all the time because we have to be mindful in this world, too, of neurodiversity. And I want to try to eliminate biases on that. It's a real thing. I could get on a call with anybody at any time and I cannot take it for granted and I cannot expect everybody else to do that. My brain is wired for that, especially when I recruit tech roles. Inherently, a lot of tech folks are introverted, just is what it is, right? There's nothing bad about being an introvert. There's nothing great about being an extrovert. It just is what it is. People are wired differently. So as a recruiter, I really try to be mindful and sensitive to how am I going to have the best conversation with somebody and make them feel as comfortable as possible and disarm them? Not in a bad way, but disarm them to feel comfortable enough to have a conversation to me about what their motivation is. This is such an important topic and like very current for me. One of my kids is we're sort of learning about her neurodivergence at the moment and going through the battery of tests and things like that. And unfortunately, you have to experience it firsthand to then develop more empathy and compassion for it. Absolutely. It is so true. 
One of the things we're trying to do at Teal, which I sort of shout from the mountaintops, is we send the interview questions in advance to people. Because there are people, like you and I, I think, are talk to thinkers. So we're generally in a better situation on our feet. But there are people who are think to talkers. And I'm just not getting their best when they got zero time to process what they're gonna say. And they just have to shoot from the hip. And everyone's like, oh, but what about like how fast they are on their feet? I'm like, that's just not real. Unless they're an EMT, that's not what I'm testing for, <laughs> you know? And I despise when people say, and it's interesting too. So for one of my tech clients, I've been sending out a pre-screener with questions. So it does a couple of things. One, these are tech qualifications that you must have. So it's an easy, like, do you have this? If you don't have it, this isn't for the role. The other one is US citizenship. Straight up for this role, it's a federal government role. You need to have a U.S. citizenship because I need to clear you for clearance if you don't have it, right? So these are simple disqualifying questions. This isn't ghosting. This isn't any of that shit. These are just qualifying questions. And here's the other thing I tell folks. I want to be mindful of your time. If you take a few minutes and answer these questions and it all checks the boxes, I could spend that half hour call really talking to you about the company, the role, the culture, the your motivations, what you're looking for, and have a real conversation around compensation. Instead of sitting there, I'm going to ask you these same questions on the call. What's the difference if you answer them in your own time? To your point, Dave, in your own words, I could write how, what I really want to say in these answers instead of being put on the spot. So keep it concise. Five to seven questions. Short answer. I don't need diatribes. I don't need you to write the odyssey here. Like. Be real, folks. There's a lot of ways to make the process better. And that's what Teal is doing. It's not one size fits all. I think on the hiring side, I think in life in general, we want everyone to sort of conform to the box that we're most comfortable in. In theory. I'll give this example because it's just, again, super current, but I think it, it applies to hiring and how we think about interviewing and creating like inclusive processes. I got home the other day, my daughter was doing her homework and she had math, science, and English all on the table at the same time. And she was doing one question for one, one question for the other, and one question for the other, right? What did you do? My mom came in, not in an offensive way, but just because like she used to be a teacher. She'd be like, that's not how you do that. And I, my response is like, that's her brain. Like her brain, that's, that's such a better situation for her rather than saying everyone has to conform to doing it this one way. So she's a master multitasker already. Yeah, it's kind of like the benefit of ADHD. It's a gift in a way. Right, like how you harness your superpower, right? Let's take a quick left turn on that for a second here. I understand when people say multitasking is a false prophecy. I go, that's a biased statement. I go, I am a multitasker. I move from task to task, but that keeps me moving all the trains forward in my business and in my life. I also do block out focused time for certain work, for real deep thinking work. But I'm a, I'm a master multitasker. It's part of my undiagnosed ACHD. It's really like a language thing because like the literal interpretation of what people do there is that you can't truly parallel process. And it's like, no, of course not. I'm serializing the process. I'm just doing them in smaller batches. The implied is like, oh, you're doing something for an hour and then the next thing for an hour. And it's like, no, I do five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, or even two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. So no, my brain's not like multi-threading. I agree with you. I can't do that. But I work in shorter batches and I get more out of my horsepower than someone else. Multi-threading was the word that kind of stuck in my head. Like, I'm not thinking about this, but writing about that. That's not what I'm doing. I'm micro-batching because, again, as a recruiter, if I'm looking down, I'll give you an example. If I'm looking down at my mixing board here, all those levels, if I need to get them to the top there, they need to be moving this one a little bit now, now moving that one. 
that keeps everything moving and the train moving forward. But I want to go back and hopefully your brain's on this one, too. I want to go back to candidates. Yeah, you and I are, are, I think, are good tangenters. So we'll try to keep each other back on the main thing. But that's a good podcast, too, because a good podcast. You want to be able to make those right and left turns and then bring it back to the main road because you got to get to the destination. I've been talking about this a lot. I want to talk about the concept of managing expectations as a candidate, too, and managing your mental mindset, too. If something is not a priority, just because it's a priority to you doesn't mean it's going to be a priority to them. Doesn't mean it's a priority to the recruiter. Doesn't mean it's a priority to the hiring manager. In the same breath, a good recruiter will be able to tell you if you ask. We're interviewing. We're role playing for a second here. I'm going to make Dave, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. A question for you. How soon is this company looking to make a hire? Right. And that's a fair question. So that'll give me two things. Give me something. Yeah, of course. It's important, not urgent. We want to get the right person. But really, we'd like for it to the offer to be out within the next two to three months. I'm in the process right now. I have a couple of other opportunities. When should I expect to hear some feedback? Well, we're talking to a few other candidates. We'd like to wrap up this phase of the process first before we give anyone like real signal, you know, because it's a market and there's a lot of really talented people out there. So we'll probably wrap up the technical interviews over the course of the next two weeks. And that's when you could probably expect to hear from us. Okay, great. So I'm going to continue down my process. I will keep you posted if I have another opportunity that is moving quickly. If I don't hear back, when should I follow up with you? Early next week, just in case, because if things wrap up, things can change. So yeah, would welcome an email from you early parts of next week, and I'm happy to give you an update on where we are. I appreciate it. Stop. See what you did there as a candidate, right? You're disarming yourself. Being, I don't know, should I email the recruiter? Should I send them a note? Is it going to look shitty? I mean, no. Dave said, shoot him a note by the end of the week if I don't hear from him. That's part of being a candidate of owning your process. I'm also a big advocate of tracking your progress too, which I know is a feature in your platform as well there too. You have to treat your job search more important or better than your job if you're deep in a job search. You have to be organized. You have to remember where you applied. You have to keep track of your follow-ups. One of the tips that I like to give candidates is utilize your Google Calendar to put reminders on there. Dave said follow up next Tuesday. I'm gonna put a reminder in there right now. I know Tuesday morning, if I forget, I'm gonna follow up with Dave on that role. Own it. Own your process as a candidate as best you can on the, other side of that as a recruiter, you owe it to a candidate to close a loop. You owe it to a candidate. Ghosting for me is if I apply to a company and they didn't send anything to me, that's not freaking ghosting, pardon my French. Ghosting to me is if you have an interaction via email or a conversation with somebody in an organization and they don't get back to you. That is ghosting. Yeah, I feel like once it becomes two-way, the one that drops off ghosts, when it's just one way, what we do on our JDs is we say, if you don't meet at least 50% of the qualifications, we probably won't get back to you. And what I'm trying to do there is the signal to noise ratio is a problem. As much as we like get super crisp and clear on the JD, it is very unfortunate. There are bad actors out there that really make the process worse for everyone, right? We say this is a US only position and the folks are clearly not. Hopefully they get hired, but that's just not something we can do. As a company, we don't have the infrastructure or it's for the government and it's not allowed. You need to know this software language don't apply if you hope to learn it. I had that one candidate, I really wanted it to work for them. They applied. So I went as far as like write them and say, hey, I didn't see Ruby on Rails on your resume. Oh, no, I don't have it. I was hoping that I could learn it on the job. And it's like, I can't do that. You do not have the ability in your organization right now to have the bandwidth. You need somebody who could come in. There's so many parts of the hiring process that are broken. Candidates also have to understand volume. Between easy apply between these AI products out there right now that are mass applying, I'm not going to name any names, that are spraying and praying, it's flooding the system. So if you're at a company, a small company, even a big company, and you don't have the, your recruiters don't have the bandwidth to screen every application, 
you're hurting other qualified candidates. I could say this, and I don't know the percentage here. Over my eight years of recruiting, both internally where I come into organizations and I operate as an internal recruiter, I have missed a decent percent of good candidates have slipped through the pipeline. A hundred percent. Sure. Why? Because volume. I have something to do. I need to keep this role moving. I need to focus on a good candidate. I see them. I'm going to screen them. I'm going to move them forward. But when I'm looking and I have 200 resumes to review, easy applies, unqualified folks just flooding the pipeline. There's some responsibility there as well, too. So to your point, you said 50 percent. Back in napkin, I like to say 75, 60, 75 percent qualified. You should apply to the role because as a recruiter, I don't have the ability to train you. You posted something on LinkedIn the other day. Yeah, essentially saying like time kills deals. Time kills deals. On the, from the recruiting side, but for candidates to understand this, it time is everything, right? It's like speed to fill. It's how recruiters are often measured, time to fill. And so I'd love to hear from you what those timelines are and responsiveness and how you take that as a signal of interest. And you only have so many minutes in the day. You do like a first in, first out, last in, last out. How do you think about those things? So let's talk about it from a candidate perspective. So time kills deals. Again, if some things are just not a priority and that's a red flag sometimes if it's not a priority. If that conversation going back where I said, Adam, this is an urgent role. We're looking to fill it as quickly as possible. Then you don't go back to me for three weeks after our first phone screen. And if it went well, you're like, what the F? You're not aligned here. And then there's also real life. And I want to talk about real life for a minute here. And everyone could kind of talk about this. There's vacations. There's kids being sick. There's people's phones breaking. There's just floods of email volume coming in where it's catching up. There's scheduling. I look at some people's calendar. I look at my wife's. She's an attorney. Sometimes I'll look at her. She'll show me her schedule. She's like, when am I going to go to the bathroom today? Yeah. <laughs> right. So when is that person going to be able to review your resume and schedule you? I talk to a client. They look at a resume on a Tuesday. They don't get back to me till Wednesday. And they go, yeah, let's schedule a day for later next week. Later next week comes and it's Thursday, like, oh, something came up. I got to move Dave to next Wednesday. All of a sudden, we are now at a 12-day gap between the first connection and that interview. This is just real life. This is just what happens. So don't take it personally, but be mindful if it's a red flag or not. I've seen companies say, hey, we're really sorry. This isn't like us and let's accelerate it. Ways to accelerate it are having multiple folks at the company on an interview, right? Having a round robin. One of my clients did something really successful where they have a caucus set up, right? It's groups. It's like, we've identified the hiring team. There's six people on this hiring team that every candidate has to meet with. The folks on that team all work together through a backend system where they could schedule. But all right, Mike's not available. I see he's available. But Jane is, Jane and I are going to take this call with the candidate. And they have a set criteria. Then everyone comes at the end online, an online platform, and they give their feedback based on set questions. Now we have quorum, now we have this consensus, and now we can make a group decision together and have a conversation about it. So how can companies be more efficient with scheduling too, right? But if it's not a priority, and the same thing, like as a recruiter, as an external recruiter, I'm being compensated only if I fill a role, if it's contingency. If a company is not a priority, I'm moving on to the next role, straight up. Time is money for me. So a little bit inside baseball for the kids at home. If you're gonna do it, yeah, <laughs> you can't half-ass your job search. And same with recruiting. If you're going to fill the position, fill the position. It's like, oh, we kind of have it lightly open. If someone applies, it doesn't work that way. If someone applies, you got to respond right away because they're applying to other jobs. And same, if you say yes to the DM, take the meeting, figure it out, because then you're both wasting time. If I'm in a contingency search and a target reaches out to me, I'm scheduling you as soon as humanly possible. That's because my carrot at the end of the stick is a bag of money. Internal recruiters don't have that same motivation. They are managing a workload. 
the average large company recruiter, and this is not a scientific stat, could have anywhere from 10 to 20 recs, job requisitions on their plate. Imagine managing 20 roles that you need to cycle through from a recruiting perspective, maybe 15 different hiring managers that you have to communicate with. And now you got to source, you got to screen, you got to schedule and get that all done. Time. The workday, not the software, <laughs> the nine to five. One of the tricky things is like recruiters are working during the workday. And I've seen this, you know, being on the candidate side and looking at the data, people really treat the job search in the context of the work week. Mondays are very active and then the weekends are quite light. Where does things like after hours, before work, non-work hours in air quotes, is that help you hurt you as a candidate? If you're like willing to take meetings, does it say something? Is it like a red flag if the company wants to schedule you at 7 p.m.? Any thoughts on that? Any advice? It goes back to the pandemic with so many people shifting to home and their availability. Do you know how hard it was, Dave, back before pandemic? And you probably remember this too when you were a candidate having to sneak out on your lunch break. And I remember working in New York City and I'm like, where do I find a freaking quiet place in New York City? I'm like literally behind a dumpster behind the Chipotle, right? Like I'm crouching behind and like there's fire trucks and sirens and everything. Now people take calls wherever the hell they want at any time. So it's made it easier, in my opinion, to schedule calls. Me as a recruiter, if a prime candidate needs to only talk on a weekend and I have that availability, listen, for me, weekends are family and they're usually off limits. But if I have to, I will. My wife understands what I do for a living. It's business. Same thing with a business development prospect for a client. You take a call when you need to. On the flip side of that, as a agency or a client reaching out to candidates, you have to give them the options. And it's kind of how you frame it. Hey, Dave, I know you're most likely busy during the nine to five. If it's easier for you, our recruiting team is available after hours with limitations. That's kind of a cool thing, in my opinion. Because you know what? I'm going to take this call at eight o'clock at night when I'm done with my workday because I'm the type of person that focuses all day and actually does my job, right? Instead of taking recruiter calls all day when I'm on your, your time and dime. I think it works both ways and it's all about how you frame it. It's tough when they say that's the only option. No, I can only talk to you after that. When I was at WeWork, one of the big objections on our prospects, I was involved in the sales process, would be if I move my company into WeWork, are my employees going to get poached? Because they're going to like run into another founder in the kitchen and they're going to have coffee together. And like, are my employees like open season? Like, am I just going to have crazy churn? I think this is not that different. It's like the Sahara Desert out there. Like the <laughs> Yeah, the people were legit scared of it, right? It's like, is it make it too easy for my employees to find another job? My response is that I couldn't say out loud is like, well, it's on you to have a great culture that keeps them and pay them well. And if not, hey, look, it's a free market. But I think this is, when we fast forward three years, four years, and we look at the employee tenure, I don't think there's going, we can go back to a world where everyone's comfortable with virtual interviewing. A lot of people are work from home. And look, it's, I think it's part of why we're seeing labor costs go up. People aren't talking about this aspect. <laughs> I got to get that. It's a big question. I think we're in the midst of the great recalibration. Mm. Calibration comes in different ways, right? So we had the great resignation, right, with COVID. Now the return to office comes back into it. The recalibration is coming in two folds. Return to office and compensation, right? The market crashed. The pandemic came. The government threw out tons of free money. Companies took those PPP loans and they binge hired like crazy. Three years later, pandemic's over. And guess what? Inflation's up. Market's down. 
first in, last out. That was the mass tech, the firings and the furloughing and all the other stuff there too. Now the market is flooded back out with a ton of talent. This talent is going out and interviewing. They're expecting to get this high salaries that we're giving to them during the pandemic. And now expectations aren't being met because the compensation now when the supply and demand change, now we're recalibrating. We're getting back to fair market value for certain levels and candidates have to be okay with that. I've saw candidates getting 30, 40% raises moving from jobs. I think the average going from a job to job in a white collar role is about seven to 8% at most, maybe 10% on a raise. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to from a senior manager to a director, I'm going from 100 to 120, 130K. That's a nice bump. We've seen crazy reasons. We saw people coming out of school with inflated salaries. We saw on the Web3 side, we saw devs getting half a million dollars because the demand was so high right there. That's not happening. That's a great recalibration. That also applies to return to office. I am a true believer in work from anywhere if a company could support it for your role, right? And that comes down to trust, options, and choices. If a company could provide those things and still ensure the work is getting done, but that doesn't come down to the company, that comes down to the employee. Could you get your job done just as well sitting in the office as you could do from home? Then I don't give a crap where you are. Are you able to come in when we have team building, team meetings, client needs, and not give me shit about it? Then we're cool. I also think that there's a big, you talked about the cost of doing business is these companies that are stuck in these 10 year, 20 year leases, and they're using that as a reason to pull people back into an office. So it's time to change the dynamic and think about other ways to utilize that space. Ultimately, it benefits the company. I'm a work from anywhere kind of person. And, you know, funny, I used to be in sort of the office business. It's not for everyone, but ultimately what I'd love everyone to do is append it with, it's not for me. People talk about it as a universal truth. It's like we are less efficient, not in the office. Maybe because I don't know how to run a team as efficiently remotely. That's cool. I can get behind that. It's more comfortable for me. Totally fine. I want to run the company this way. Totally fine. But to talk about it as like a universal truth, that doesn't seem right. Here's another bias that is, and I'm going to do a post on this soon. You and I, I'm going to make an assumption, have a comfortable life. Yes. We have a house. We have a space to work. I have an office. You have an office. I have a studio. There are so many people out there that were forced to work from home during a pandemic. And they were in a place where they, hey, maybe I'm in a one bedroom apartment in the city with two kids, four cats and an elderly relative. How the hell am I going to sit at my kitchen office all day and be at my peak performance, take calls and everything when I have kids running around? I got to get them uh, remote schooling and all that. We take that for granted. Some people thrive in an office. Some people need to physically be in an office because they don't have that physical space. It's a terrible bias in the work from home conversation. It's bullshit in my opinion. Some people need to have that office option. Yeah, I think it's conditional. The companies that are able to provide that optionality and get better at management. I just think like as knowledge work becomes the majority of work, well, we'll see. I mean, we're having sort of like blue collar shortages left and right. And AI may make knowledge work. There may be less demand for it. Tremendous blue collar shortage. And there's also a major shortage of accounting, accounting and number crunchers in this country. But to what you said before, is AI going to replace a lot of that functionality as well? I was trying to keep us tactical, but I don't know. This just maybe one of the episodes where we get more theoretical because I love this stuff. The other macro effect is salary transparency. We must be at like 10 plus states that now have it. I'll fact check that in the show notes. But there's twofold to that. It's like, now I know what I'm applying for, but the employee base, your company is like de facto salary transparent now because even if they don't share salaries internally, 
the JD for the job I have has just been posted and the salary in that JD is higher than what I make. Let's talk about internal equity. Let's pull back the curtain again. Most organizations, if they're more than like 200, 300, 400 people, they're going to have salary bands. And you need to have that from a finance planning perspective. You have levels, you have roles. American Express, I remember, had up to like level 50 when I worked there, right? And these are salary bands. And they're very useful for a company because it's defining a title and where you fall into that. If you're being promoted internally, what's your jump going to be? If we're hiring somebody, here's the bandwidth. We're able to hire at this direct level between 150 and 175 on the high end. So now as a recruiter, I have some bandwidth of where I could kind of go with that offer. And I also know that I have pre-approved finance approval to make that offer. And now I don't have to go back to finance and ask for more money necessarily, right? So what happens to your point when you're inside of a company and you're like, wait a minute, that salary is 200K, but I'm only in 140, right? That kind of throws the whole shebang off. I have very mixed thoughts on salary transparency. I think in the job description, it's cool to give someone a range. And I also like to say, too, like, because you don't want to limit somebody to, like, let's just say the high end of a role is 200K and Dave wants 205. I'm like, you know, and I can probably get that 5K for a real good candidate. So it's how you word it, how you phrase it, and also not totally disqualifying somebody. And here's the other thing, too. If I'm a job seeker, because you can't ask somebody their salary, and I see 150 to 200, what salary do you think I'm going to ask for in the interview? We're trying to do, I'll talk about, like, you know, we're constantly holding ourselves to as high of a standard as we can, given what we do is for the majority of the positions, I'm not putting in a range. Because I think that the discrepancy... Not a range, a hard number? Hard number, single number. And we only hire in the U.S. and we don't localize per state. We pay U.S. rates. So that's obviously sort of embedded in that. And I'm trying to decouple because people want to negotiate and we tell people to negotiate because in most of the market you can. But there's a difference between what you're worth in the market you may be worth that. Exactly. This is our budget. This is what we can afford. We are hiring a 4-3 software engineer. You have 5-2 abilities. That's just not what we need. And if we went and modified everything for the person that applied to try to, your value is not what we can afford. Those are two different things. This is not our representation of how we feel about you, how valuable we think you are. It's just what I can afford. This is not a slight on you and trying to decouple these two things. And it's hard and it doesn't always happen. And like, I have another offer. It's like, great, go do it because this is how we stay fair. It's not the squeaky wheel gets the grease, the person who knows to ask and the, all the people who don't make less. We don't want to perpetuate that system. I like that approach. I think that it's fair and it's, but then you see the companies that, you always know, see the ones out there. Oh yeah, our salary range is a uh, dollar to a million dollars a year. Like, screw you. Like, if you want me to put a range in there, I'm just going to do. I'm going to give you the range. What was happening was exactly your point is it, it just always ended in disappointment, right? So like on the company side, the majority of the time, like, yeah, it's the middle. If the person's a little less, I'll go down. If they're great, I'll go up. On the candidate side, it's always the top. Always. So like you are set for disappointment without a doubt. I mean, the way I like to do it is if I'm on a call with a candidate, because you cannot ask how much money somebody is making these days. Certainly, we have to have the conversation. I am not going to pigeonhole you. I am not going to hold you to this. But I need a range of what you're targeting in your next position. Right. So I ask for a range. And then if the number is too high, go listen. If it's completely out of the out of the range, I say, listen, we're, we're off. That's why we're having the conversation now. Sometimes you call their bluff on it and they'll come back to you like a day later on email. Like, you know, what? I'm OK with that number. Right. Because they, they're shooting high. But it also gives me a sense of where they want to be. And nine out of 10 times, people are having an open, honest conversation with me. I go, listen, my job, if I'm working contingency, I want to get you the highest salary because that's what I'm getting compensated of. 
you hear people all the time, it's like the recruiter gets bonus if they save it. They actually don't. Most recruiters are measured, internal recruiters on time to hire. It's not on dollars saved for salary. And agency recruiters or headhunters are percentage of comp. So they're all actually, they want to get it done as fast as possible. And keeping money out of your pocket isn't going to speed things up. Or they want you to make more because they make more. So the majority of people are actually aligned with you making as much as possible. It's in best case scenario, but then I also phrase it like this too. I go, when I'm working internally, like let's just say you hire me to be a freelance recruiter at Teal and, and I'm doing hiring for you. I go, listen, here's the deal. I know the range. I know the for this role. My job is to find a happy medium on both sides. And most people are rational and they understand that. I'm going to aim to try to get you as much as possible, but I'm also going to be realistic with you and tell you the truth if you're too high. And then you can make that decision. I don't write your check. I want you to get paid as much as you can. But guess what? This is this company's budget. They're not paying you one penny over 160K a year. I'm not saying it to be a jerk. I'm just telling you the fact. Yeah. Like everyone's motivated to get the higher done. Here's another thing I've been thinking about lately is that a trick that has been done on the workforce is to negotiate at the year, this fictitious year, right? The fictitious annualized salary. And so now even internally, we don't pay people on a yearly basis. So why do we talk about salary on a yearly basis? Right, we might pay them weekly, hourly, weekly, bi-weekly, twice a month. And so even internally, I'm like, okay, look, let's think about what does this mean to the company on a monthly basis, which is how we budget. I tell people, hey, if you're gonna negotiate, bring that back to the company. It's like, oh, I wanna go from 120 to 144. It's $2,000 a month. Company, that's like nothing to you in the grand scheme of things. But when you say $24,000, so that's a big number. But it's just so funny, this thing we've done with this fictitious annualized salary. After taxes, after everything comes out of it, right? Do you realize how much comes out of taxes? Do you realize the difference between 150 and 175 a year? It's not $25,000 a year. It's maybe, I'm making this up, fact check me on the math, maybe a few hundred dollars a paycheck. Not to say it doesn't make a difference in someone's life, but let's think about it. Annualized salary is a funny thing. And it hurts both because I've seen certain candidates, you know, like I get it. We have content that helps people negotiate for every last dollar, which they should, because that's your highest moment of leverage compared to like trying to get a raise later. Because unfortunately, we don't promote people at the same rate that we, I mean, that's why there's that statistic that people make a 10% raise when they switch jobs. Right, the only way to make a real bump is to change up. It's true. The system needs work around. I'm hoping some of this tra salary transparency stuff helps. But I do think the pendulum has to swing a little further it has to get a little more broken before it's fully fixed. Is it predefined raises in an organization so people understand that? Is it a higher number to keep retention? Every year you're going to, instead of that normal two to 3%, every year you're gonna get, based on your performance, five to 10%. That's how I'm gonna keep somebody. You kick ass, you're gonna get 10% so you don't have to move jobs. I don't, I'm just throwing it out there, right? Like what are, what are solutions? My sense is more transparency. Yeah, always, always, always. I'm with you on that one. Part of the reason it's anxiety inducing is because it's so unknown. That's the X factor in the interview process too. It's not knowing to. I've seen great companies also do just a side note is they really utilize the ATS to be a candidate dashboard, but that requires the recruiter to keep updating it. Your resume is still in review. If you're talking about managing expectations, right? Where's a candidate stand in the process? I am also very transparent with candidates. I am always transparent. Say, Dave, you are a little bit late to the game. That's just the way it works in the process. We're having our first phone call now, but I'm gonna be open with you. We have three candidates in the final round. So there's a good chance we're gonna see those through before I get back to you in next steps. Or, right, we're early in the process. You're the first candidate I'm speaking with. Just to be straight up with you, I'm gonna be in this early stage for the next couple of weeks, right? So that's another thing too. You as a candidate, 
You're not always coming to the process on day one when they put the job out there. That's it, something completely, I'm gonna write a post about. There's another great idea too, understanding as a candidate. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time. Can you give me a sense of uh, where you're at in the process now? Do you have any candidates far along? Simple question. Qualifications are one of many factors, but I think more important to understand is that time, time is a key criteria. How qualified are you relative to the first cohort of applicants, the people that applied on week one? Ideally, your hire is in the week one cohort. Like you open the job, that would be the best. And so if you apply on week two and there's a great candidate in week one, honestly, maybe even like 80% of the candidate that you are, they've already got a leg up because they've already had a few interviews. That's less thing they have to schedule, less time on all the people that have to do the interviews because again, the hire wants to be made. So speed to hiring on both sides. I mean, I just think about like when I post a job, that first batch of applicants, because we promote it in our newsletter, we share it on social. I look at every single one of those. My energy is super high. Like I'm refreshing greenhouse every hour. By week two, week three, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll check it once a week. That's not any less important, but there's other people in the process. Now I've got 10 people in screeners, one person into a technical. So like, am I going to bring someone into the process three weeks in when I've already got so many? So time is just such a critical aspect and that urgency to do it, you just, you can't sleep on it. I 100% agree. What more could I tell your audience about the kimonos open before we wrap the show? What more can I tell you? Well, let's just end with this one. Since you as an agency recruiter, you get to see lots of companies. Have you seen a single ATS that automatically screens or ranks candidates? I have not. I have not seen this. But what I will talk about again, there are things called knockout questions. Let's just say I will have three questions. If you're not a U.S. citizen, if you don't have this particular software, if you don't live in this particular region, that has nothing to do with you as a person. It has just all to do with what that company needs for that specific role. That's what will knock you out. Now, I've seen the ability internally as a human recruiter to go into an ETS and I could sort and I could filter and I could look for certain things. I could look for tenure. I could look for keywords. I have to do it. But I haven't seen a ranking I've heard rumors of ATS using some AI out there in the future that might be able to do this, right? So there are some things in technology that aren't unnecessarily not true, but they're not automatically deleting you unless it's a knockout question. That's the truth. I do think this is one of those situations where like the sci-fi or the folklore could become real. It just wasn't real before, but there is like bulk rejection based off things like that. Those are true, but it's not AI. It's like very simple filtering. I've bulk rejected candidates, but I put them in a filter of it'll be easier for me to say these are unqualified. And I hit a little box and there's 30 people in there and they're going to get that automated email from that company saying, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. But we're passing right now. That's it. It's almost always a person. It is. Adam, that was awesome. We covered a lot of stuff. Definitely went down paths that haven't gone on any of the other episodes. This will be a fun one. How can folks follow along? You're on a lot of channels, the marketer that you are. What's the best way for folks to tune in? I appreciate everyone connecting and following me on LinkedIn at Adam J. Posner. You can check out the podcast at thepodcast.com and on Instagram at NHP Talent. And I don't even know, I'm trying to message Twitter X, whatever you call it these days. Oh, follow me on TikTok. I've really been trying to TikTok. My daughter, my 11-year-old daughter is my editor. She's amazing at it. She crushes TikTok. I'm doing all these cool things with split screens and green screens. But Dave, and I mean this sincerely, I love what you're building with Teal. Anything to help job seekers organize Remember, plan your work, work your plan, and treat your job search harder than you do your current job, and you will be successful. And manage expectations. 
Very good ending advice. Well, thanks so much. I was, this was on the books for a while, so I'm glad we got to do it. And I look forward to the next one. Absolutely. hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We want to give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.